Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, what's up? Welcome to episode 32 or season number 2, episode 12 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. I'm Kyle, your host as per the usual. Today's episode, young men and young women listening out there in podcast land, is about Marie Curie. I saved one of the best for last on Ladies Month of the podcast here in April. And she is one of the brightest, one of the best and brightest minds, not only of her generation, but of any generation. A a wonderfully fantastic woman to analyze, to talk about, and to get the story of. So, as I look at my clock now, and I'm literally less than a minute into the intro, I don't really have all that much more to talk about. Uh, I'll save that for the May prequel episode, whatever whatever random nonsense I want to talk about then. I will save for that one. As for this one, guys, episode 32 of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Marie Curie, stick with us. Last subject of our ladies of the month on the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Marie Curie, born Marie Sklodowska in uh, November of 1867, was a Polish woman. She was born in the former kingdom of Poland, which at that point was a part of the old Russian Empire before it would be taken over by the Leninists in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. She was born in 1867, and from a very early age, it was seen by all around her that she was an incredibly bright woman. She was an incredibly bright young lady, and she, accordingly, wanted to be a part of, you know, I guess you could call it the boys' club. She wanted to be a part of the things that she was interested in, the things that she loved doing. Unfortunately for her, though, she was a her. Marie Curie, obviously being a girl and a woman, made it very difficult for her at this time in Poland to enroll in higher education. Women were barred from enrolling in higher education because, of course, misogyny. This is how it goes. This is a lot of the things that we've talked about on Ladies Month of this podcast with our different uh, amazing 
female, you know, uh, uh, figures of history is they all have this one thing in common. They typically are women in history that had to overcome the barrier that men put up in front of them because for some reason they thought that women couldn't do it. And therein lies the difference. Therein lies the key to this entire thing. It's not that these women couldn't do anything. It's because they were not given the opportunity, the same opportunities that others were given to do things. Because when they were given the opportunities here and there, rarely, they often succeeded highly, much to everyone's surprise. In Marie Curie's case, she enrolled in a thing called the Flying University. Now, what the Flying University was, it was this sort of clandestine, which which means that it's, you know, sort of under wraps. It's, it's unofficial. It, it shouldn't be talked about, you know, that sort of thing. It was an underground educational enterprise that opened up in 1885 and operated from 1885 to 1905 in Warsaw, in Poland. And now, at this time, uh, not only were women not allowed to, to take part in higher you know, learning, uh, but a lot of Polish citizens in general were not allowed to take part in higher learning because of this increasing Prussian and Russian influence. Uh, Poland kind of stuck in the middle of those two. Uh, and for whatever reason, the the ethnic anger against native Poles made it kind of difficult for everyone to achieve higher learning, but uh, most especially women, women of Polish descent being probably the most difficult to find education. So Marie Curie uh, enrolled herself in this clandestine university, and so did her sister, Bronislawa, who ended up growing up to be a doctor. So a couple of very bright women in this family. Uh, her sister and her made an agreement with one another where Bronislawa would give her financial assistance during her medical studies in Paris in exchange for similar assistance a couple years later with Marie Curie was done with her studies. In connection with this whole thing, so Marie is studying, she's looking after her passion, she's getting everything done that she wants to get done, she takes a job as a governess. A governess, if you are also unaware, is kind of a fancy word for like a, a, a nanny or someone who kind of uh, you know babysits children but also is with them all day and also offers them like tutoring assistance and lessons in manners and, and da, 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 the all that whole thing, you know, is, is, is packed into one position. And at this time in history, that was known as a governess. So Marie takes this position uh, during her studies to help pay for everything. And as she's uh, trying to move into the real world and then works for two years as a governess uh, for these people in, in Warsaw and she absolutely, absolutely hates, hates, hates the job. She doesn't, she doesn't mind the tutoring part. She doesn't mind teaching because she is a bright, bright young woman and she enjoys what she's doing. She just absolutely hates every single part of the job beyond that. So she didn't make a good governess, but you have to do what you have to do to make money and to pay for your higher education. So she did this for a little while, a couple of years after she was finished uh, with her schooling. So as she is finishing with what she wants to do in school, she finds that she has this love of physics and chemistry and mathematics. She's absolutely adoring all these subjects. She's very bright. She's very good at these sort of things. So she decides 
1891 to leave Poland and move west to France, where she would meet her sister, who was already living there, you know, going through medical uh, studies as well. She would meet her meet her sister there and her brother-in-law, her sister's uh, husband, and she would live with them for a very short amount of time before renting herself a, uh, a sort of an apartment, I guess you could say, closer to uh, the university in Paris in the Latin Quarter, where she ended up living, and basically a ramshackle piece of shit as a poor, poor college student studying type person might do. She then started to study those same subjects at the University of Paris, where she enrolled in 1891, not long after she uh, moved to France with her sister and her sister's husband. During that time, she subsisted on very meager resources. She often suffered from cold winters during this time and occasionally fainted from hunger. So Marie Curie at this point is like every poor college student, can't afford food, uh, can't afford heat, can't afford anything, uh, and is barely keeping on. But her love of the studying, uh, the love of her academics is, is keeping her going. She knows that there is something at the end of the tunnel for her and that she has something to say. She has something to do with this world, and it's not going to stop her from doing what she set out to accomplish. And accomplish, she did. In 1893, while barely earning her keep, barely you know able to keep the lights on, barely able to feed herself by studying all day and tutoring all evening and passing out you know from hunger, in 1893, she was awarded a degree in physics from the University of Paris, and then began work in an industrial laboratory um, by a man named the Professor Gabriel Lippmann. Meanwhile, even after having earned that physics degree, she continued studying at the University of Paris, and with the aid of a fellowship that she received, she was also able to earn a second degree in 1894, that degree being in mathematics. Maybe the most important thing, though, that happened to Marie Curie is that in that very same year, in 1894, she met Pierre Curie. Now, I've been referring to her, obviously, as Marie Curie the entire time because that's how we know her now. Um, and that's, you know, who she was, you know, how she was named at the time that she made her discoveries. And we'll get to that in a second. Obviously, she was uh, she was Maria Sklodowska. But that's hard to say, and I'm pretty sure I'm saying it wrong anyway. So Marie Curie is, you know, who she is to me as I talk to about her on the podcast. So I'm not saying that she was named, you know, Marie Curie and she met a guy with the same name. They got whatever. She was Marie Sklodowska, and she meets Pierre Curie at this time in Paris, and they hit it off immediately. They they both have, you know, the same interests they love physics, they love chemistry, they love mathematics. Pierre Curie himself was working on uh, uh, his doctorate at this point, studied magnetism in Paris, and after this point, you know, they grow closer and closer together, and Pierre Curie eventually proposes to Marie wanting to marry her. Now, at this point, she wanted to marry him, but she kind of had to decline at first, because she figured, if I marry Pierre, I'm going to have to stay in France. And Marie's heart was always set in Poland, her native Poland. She always wanted to go back there and teach and you know bring the new generation of Polish people 
into, you know, what she was was into. So instead of, you know, marrying him right then and there, she tells him that, hey, I want to go back to Poland. This is what I want. Pierre, being the extreme gentleman that he is, says that he loves her more than anything that he loves in France and that if it came down to it, he would return he would go with her. He wouldn't return. He's not from there. He would go with her to Poland where she would return to and he would settle for just being, you know, a regular high school type teacher if it meant that they could be together wherever they were. Of course, this is ultra romantic and they make their way to Poland a little bit thereafter. Now, when it comes to the type of intelligence that Marie Curie had, you know, she just sort of spent all this time in Paris learning what she was learning, studying, you know, uh, seeing a different type of culture because the culture in Western Europe, and it is the same way today, although not nearly as uh, not nearly as far away from one another, but you can sort of imagine there is a Western European style of culture. There is a Central European style and an Eastern European style of culture culture typically the western european is a lot more like say if you are the typical listener to this podcast and you are from the united states or you are from you know western europe that is very similar in that type of culture and as you move east you start to see more influence from particular russia that sort of influence on eastern european culture and things are different and she got used to this western european culture And in her head, she figured, I'm going to go back to Poland, I'm going to go to the university, and I'm going to be a professor in Poland. I'm going to be a a top professor, and we're going to get stuff done here. Unfortunately, in the very short time that she was away from Poland, things didn't change much on the female front. She could not get a job anywhere in Poland, especially at Krakow University, where she wanted to work because she was a woman. No matter what she did, no one would take her as a professor because of her gender. At this point, then, Pierre urges her to come back to Paris to pursue doctorate work, to pursue a Ph.D. You know, he is still working then on his magnetism research, and he wants her to go back to France where they can then continue to do what they were doing. She agrees, and they go back to France where they continue to study and eventually in uh, 1895, in July, they get married in a non-religious service, and they become closer and closer because they share this, you know, this strange connection that that they they love doing the same type of stuff, and not only not only science, you know, I as I read here. They shared two pastimes in particular. They loved taking long bicycle trips, and they loved taking journeys abroad, which would bring them even closer. And in addition, of course, they loved being scientific partners and collaborators because they're both these highly intelligent people who were into the same sort of science. So this then leads to the first huge part of the mythos of Marie Curie. So in 1895, a man named Wilhelm Röntgen discovered the existence of X-rays sort of by accident, although they didn't really, you know, understand them. They did discover them at that point. In 1896, Henri Bakiri discovered that uranium itself, uranium salts in particular that he was using, emitted rays that resembled X-rays in their penetrating power. 
He then demonstrated that this radiation, unlike phosphorescence, phosphorescence being, you know, the burning of something that would then produce a, a, a source of energy or light. He demonstrated that this particular type of radiation didn't actually need an external source of energy to spark it. It actually seemed to just arise spontaneously from the uranium itself. It just seemed like if uranium existed, then this new sort of radiation, this new X-ray came from uranium on its own. Being the bright young lady that she is, Marie Curie took this research and decided that she wanted to look into uranium rays as a possible field of research for a thesis later on. So she and Pierre start working on this, and she actually uses an innovative technique of his to to investigate these samples. Fifteen years before any of this happened, uh, Pierre and his brother had actually developed a version of the electrometer, a device basically that is used to measure electrical charge, you know, in the air around wherever the meter is 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 looking. She takes this electrometer and she puts it up to uh, the samples of uranium that she's using, and she finds that the air actually does conduct electricity around this element. And obviously, like we were saying before, there is no external force that is causing this to to happen. So she hypothesizes that the radiation was not the outcome of some you know molecules bumping into each other or doing whatever. But the radiation had to actually come from within the atom itself. And this hypothesis then is an important step disproving that this this old assumption at this point or the, an assumption that had been, you know, sort of uh, named as fact for a long time that atoms were just these sort of indivisible, you know, linked together, linked together things, you know, that just existed. And, and you know, the atom was understood to be the smallest form of life and obviously we're we're you know, misunderstanding, you know, at this point before uh, that there are subatomic particles and even those subatomic particles having their own, you know, small parts of them. Anyhow, at this point, people just think that, you know, atoms are the small, smallest thing that there are, that there is. And these things are all just linked together and you can't do anything. They just they are what they are. She starts to think, oh, boy, there are actually things coming out of these atoms. And it's just because of the way that they exist, I have to study further. So she uses two different uranium min- minerals in her studies, uh, you know, with the electrometer. She uses uh, pitchblende and torbonite. Uh, both of these things basically are made of mostly uranium. Now, at the time, people thought these were made of only uranium minerals and then maybe maybe uh, small amounts of other just, you know, inert stuff, whatever it is. She uh, she puts the electrometer up to these things and finds that pitchblende, uh, one of the first uranium metals that she's using, is actually four times as active as pure uranium itself and torbonite being twice as active. Putting two and two together, she concludes that, uh, uh, you know, because that when you look at a, at a particular element like uranium, they found out that the the amount of radiation coming from it didn't have anything to do, like we said, with an external force putting something into it and boom, radiation. It had more to do with the quantity of it. So if I have, you know, a gram of uranium, that's going to give off a certain amount of radiation. And then if I have two grams of, of uranium, I'm going to have twice as much radiation because I've added quantity. 
that also, you know, was part of her saying, hey, there has to be something inborn in, in these atoms causing this radiation because all I have to do is just have more of it and I have more radiation. You know, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to have an external force, you know, act upon this uranium to release whatever. All I had to do was just get a bunch more of it, put it together. Boom, I have way more radiation. Awesome. So she goes, well, if that's the case that I have, you know, if I just put more of something to make it more reactive, why is this pitch blend four times more active than the same quantity, you know, in weight as pure uranium? Like I said, putting two, two, two and two together, she discovers, hey, there has to be something else, some other elements acting radioactively in this pitch blend that are making this more radioactive than just pure uranium. That then leads to her discovery of two new elements, two completely new unknown elements at the time, which is a gigantic scientific discovery, especially in the late 19th century. The Curies named this first element that they discover polonium. They name it polonium after her native Poland, and they name the second one that they find radium after the Latin word ray. Of course, these two these two uh, elements are extremely unstable and very difficult to you know to to study in any sort of of meaningful way, especially at this point in time. Although you know, in the inso facto way, there is no denying that these exist, and they are actually what you know, coined the term radioactivity that comes from, you know, the the radium that they use, which they eventually, you know, term the entire thing radioactivity. And, you know, as we discover later on, these are part of this pitch blend and part of these other elements because uranium-238, the most common form of uranium, the, the, the one that is going to do what it does, will decay and over certain amounts of decaying, will become these elements, you know, these smaller elements. Uh, polonium, if I'm looking here correctly, is the uh, 84th element on the periodic table, or, you know, polonium 84, whereas, you know, like I said, uranium is 238, a much, much larger element on its own. And, you know, so it's going to, to be, you know, an instance where uranium is decaying and polonium is part of that decay chain which, you know, they also start to talk about later on. But polonium and radium, which is number 88, uh, both of them are much smaller than uranium itself. But because, you know, of their their particular, their particular, you know, decayed state are extremely, extremely radioactive. Although polonium is much, much worse. Polonium basically, even today, isn't actually used for anything crazy applied. There are a couple things, and if you are very curious, you can look up polonium, but there isn't a ton that uh, polonium is used for because it is just so unstable and so radioactive, you know. And think about it now, and we're going to get to this, you know, towards the end of the, the episode here. But Pierre and Marie were just straight up working with these radioactive elements. They didn't understand yet, and they would understand later, how damaging radioactivity is to the human body, to living tissue in general. And these guys were working in basically a, a ramshackle laboratory shed that they built, you know, nearby the university's laboratory it used to be a, 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 a cadaver lab, a medical science lab. 
poorly ventilated, you know, just this crappy, and they're just working, you know, normal clothes, no, just no protection whatsoever. With things like polonium, which we discover later on, is extremely radioactive to very dangerous, dangerous degrees, whatever, we will get to that later on. The point of the matter is that the Curies discover Marie in particular because this was her research that Pierre then sort of bandwagons onto because he's like, my research is stupid, this is much more interesting, I am going to join her train, and we're going to do this from here on forward, discover two completely separate elements based solely on this chain of thought from, hey, look at this x-ray, boom, 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 all the way down to discovering two elements in a very logical pattern of thought. In particular, when looking at uh, radium, one of the two elements that they discovered, they wanted to to separate this down into a pure form that, you know, they could they could hold in their hand, basically. Uh, when they were looking at these two elements, they knew that polonium was pretty easy to discover, pretty easy, you know, to see that was in there. It chemically resembles bismuth, another element that was known at the time, and in this uh, pitch plane that they were using, um, you know, the only thing like that was polonium. You know, it was the only bismuth-like substance in the ore. Radium, on the other hand, was a lot more elusive to them uh, as it closely resembled it and was related to barium, you know, another alkaline earth metal. And pitch blend actually has both of those in it. It has barium and the newly discovered radium. By 1898, the Curies had obtained very small traces of radium, but to actually make any appreciable quantity uncontaminated with barium, it was a very difficult task. They started to uh, use a technique called differential crystallization and literally took a ton of pitch blend, an actual ton weight-wise, and out of that ton, slowly but surely, through this uh, through this uh, task of differential crystallization, produced an entire tenth of one gram of radium chloride salt, which was separated by 1902. Between 1898 and 1902, both Pierre and Marie published jointly or separately a total of 32 different scientific papers, including one that announced that when exposed to radium, diseased tumor-forming cells were destroyed faster than healthy cells, leading the way to the use of radiation against cancer. This work with radium in particular led to December of 1903. In December of 1903, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences awarded Pierre Curie, uh, Marie Curie, and Henri Bacchiero, which we remember him from being the guy who was the first to talk about this sort of X-ray sort of thing with uranium that led the Curies down their own path. They led them all in 1903 to be awarded with the Nobel Prize in Physics, quote, in recognition of extraordinary services they have rendered by their joint researches on the radiation phenomena discovered by Professor Henri Bacquerel. Pierre, Pierre Curie, at, at first... Pierre and Henri were the only ones who were going to be, you know, honored and nominated because, of course, we still hate women at this point. And, and, and how could how could Marie Curie possibly be a part of any of this stuff? But being the, the, the dope ass husband that he is, Pierre takes a stand and and shows that his wife, Marie Curie, was an extremely 
important part of the research and honestly was probably the the, the most important part of the research being the one uh, going headfirst into it while he then later joined her and helped her out. He was not the progenitor of this research in particular. The committee is fine with it and Marie Curie then becomes the first woman to be awarded a Nobel Prize. This then leads to more opportunity for the both of them uh, eventually leading to Pierre Curie being offered a uh, a seat at the University of Paris in their physics department as the physics chair of the entire university, while Marie Curie continued to do uh, laboratory work at the very same university. Uh, in addition, their award of the Nobel Prize and the money given to them actually allowed them to hire their very first laboratory assistant. That's kind of a fun thing that... You could literally think of these two geniuses working side by side and literally didn't ever have enough money during their research to actually hire just a grunt to do the grunt work that they were doing. And it's just amazing to think about that because nowadays that's like all it is. You go to a university and, and, you know, physics and chemistry students are the ones, you know, while they're learning the craft and learning everything about it, are the grunts that are the ones actually, you know, doing what the 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 physicist or chemist in charge is actually researching. But anyhow, devastation then strikes the Curies on on April 19th of 1906. Pierre Curie is killed in a road accident. He's walking across a, a bridge in heavy rain, and he was struck by a horse-drawn vehicle, fell under its wheels, and uh, basically having his uh, head crushed, and he was killed instantly. Marie Curie is obviously extremely devastated by her husband's death. They were they were perfect partners in science and in love. On the 13th of May of that same year, the physics department that had, you know, offered that physics chair to her husband Pierre Curie actually offered it to Marie and she accepted their offer. She hoped to create a world-class laboratory as a tribute to her now past husband Pierre. Um, and continue the work that the two of them were doing together, which then led to her actually becoming the first woman to become a professor at the University of Paris. Her quest to create a new lab, which was her first huge thing that she thought about, did not end with the University of Paris, however. In her later years, she then headed the Radium Institute, a radioactivity laboratory created by her, uh, for her, I should say, uh, by the Pasteur Institute and the University of Paris in collaboration. The initiative for creating this institute had come in 1909, a couple years later, um, from a man who had been disappointed that the University of Paris was not giving Curie a proper laboratory, a man named Pierre-Paul-Emile Rowe, and had suggested that she move then to the Pasteur Institute. Now, now they're starting to try to poach her because they understand the incredible intelligence that she has. Only then, with the threat of Curie actually leaving, did the University of Paris actually happen to relent. And eventually, the Curie Pavilion became a joint initiative of those two institutes and her dream of these huge laboratories that they could use to continue to study these uh, these things scientifically came to uh, great effect. All of this proved to be extremely fruitful uh, and led in 1911 to Marie Curie's second Nobel Prize, and this time the Nobel Prize was given to her not in physics like her first one, but was given in chemistry, not only because she discovered polonium and radium, but by this point in 1911 had actually, uh, uh, in reasonable quantities, um, separated out radium 
you know, radium salts, basically, and had more than just, you know, a tenth of a gram to show for it. At this point, the amount of resources and uh, 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 funding she had at her back and laboratory work she had at her back, they could actually make a reasonable quantity of radium, which she had isolated, and became an international standard for uh, radioactive emissions that would eventually, you know, be used for things like, you know, early forms of, of, of medicinal radiology. She was given this Nobel Prize in 1911 in chemistry, and not only is she the first woman to win two Nobel Prizes in separate categories, she is the first and only person ever to this day as I record this podcast, who's ever won two Nobel Nobel Prizes and those Nobel Prizes being in different categories, one in physics, one in chemistry. That shows you how insanely intelligent and, you know, the crazy genius that Marie Curie had. She then continued to use this, this radioactive work to great effect during World War One. Curie recognized that wounded soldiers were best served if operated on as soon as possible. There's that there's that big noggin coming into effect again. She saw a need for field radiological centers near the front lines to help the battlefield surgeons do their good work. After a quick study of radiology, anatomy, and automotive mechanics, she actually procured x-ray equipment, vehicles, auxiliary generators, and developed her own mobile radiography units, literally like vehicles with big old crosses on them that she fucking drove around and was a mobile x-ray unit, the first ever in the entire world, which became popularly known as Petite Curies or Little Curies, if you you couldn't get that from the very obvious French part. She then became director of the Red Cross Radiology Service and set up France's first military radiology center, which became operational by 1914. Assisted first by a military doctor and then by her 17-year-old daughter, Irene, Marie Curie directed the installation of 20 mobile radiological vehicles and 200 radiological units at field hospitals all over the place in the very first year of, at this point, the Great War. Later, she began training other women as radiological aides. She was so into helping the war effort out in France. She was so into this humanitarian mission that she had got into that she actually offered the French National Bank her two gold, and these Nobel Prizes are made of gold. She offered these two, both of her Nobel Prizes, the only woman who had these sort of things in the entire world. She offered them to the French National Bank as part of the war effort, although they very smartly refused to accept them, knowing that this is a big deal and they should not take something like that away from her. She did buy war bonds using her Nobel Prize money, however, and is quoted in saying, quote, I am going to give up the little gold I possess. I shall add to this scientific metals, which are quite useless to me. There is something else. By sheer laziness, I had allowed the money for my second Nobel Prize to remain in Stockholm and Swedish crowns. This is the chief part of what we possess. I should like to bring it back here and invest it in war loans. The state needs it. Only I have no illusions this money will probably be lost. So she she knew what she was doing and she still wanted to help out France this entire time. Even though France wasn't even her native country, she was still, you know, a Polish girl at heart. 
and still very much believed in the Polish cause, which, you know, Poland was sort of uh, having its own issues now, uh, being embroiled in a new, you know, Leninist Russia and all that stuff. But she still still had a soft heart for them as well. But she, she you know, in, a, in addition to her scientific, you know, uh, research and discovery, she had a, a warm heart when it came to uh, helping those in need and using her intelligence, using what she had discovered to help people who could benefit from it, you know, in particular the soldiers in World War One. After the war, uh, in 1920, for the 25th anniversary of the discovery of radium, the French government actually established a stipend for her. Its previous recipient was a famous Louis Pasteur, who discovered, you know, pasteurization in killing, you know, germs and things of that nature. Uh, when it came to food, your most popular pasteurized food being milk, probably. In 1921, she was welcomed triumphantly when she toured the United States to raise funds for her research on radium. In 1921, she was seen by President Warren G. Harding, one of the worst presidents ever, by the way, but at the time was president of the United States. He uh, received her at the White House and presented to her another gram of radium that had been collected in the United States. This was all, you know, in pursuit of her establishing more and more uh, radiology institutes around uh, places in Europe. Uh, In particular, one of these institutes uh, actually produced four more Nobel Prize winners, including her daughter. So you have the mother winning winning Nobel Prizes and then her daughter, Irene, eventually winning her own Nobel Prize in chemistry. And actually, uh, one of her sons-in-law, Frederick. Uh, Curie eventually also won a Nobel Prize, so that that family is full of ultra smart people. In August of 1922, Marie Curie became a member of the newly created International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation, and this is part of the then quickly defunct League of Nations, which would obviously become the United Nations later on. In 1923, she wrote a biography of her husband Pierre entitled Pierre Curie. In 1925, she then went back and visited Poland to participate in the ceremony that would eventually lay the foundations for the Radium Institute in Warsaw. Her second American tour, then in 1929, succeeded in actually equipping the Warsaw Institute with radium. It was opened in 1932, and her sister, Bronislawa, as we uh, had mentioned before, became the director of that institute. Eventually, though, we come to the conclusion of our story. Curie visits Poland for the very last time in 1934. A few months later, on the 4th of July in 1934, she died at the uh, St. Sanatorium in uh, in Pesy, Hotsovi, which is part of southeastern France. She died from aplastic anemia, probably caused by the long-term radiation exposure that she had undergone since the late 1890s up to 1934. So about 35 to 40 years of exposure to radiation probably caused her to die of aplastic anemia, which is basically a bone marrow disease where your body can literally not produce any of the cells that it needs to exist. Things like red blood cells, things like white blood cells, things like platelets, all of the things that your body needs to live her body could not produce anymore and it is very likely that it was because of you know nearly 40 straight years of damaging exposure to ionizing radiation something that they really didn't understand at this point 
was so, so damaging to a person. They knew that you could see through somebody basically with this radiation. They just didn't know that the effect of these x-rays and other radioactivity, radioactive waves on living tissue. Interestingly enough, when she was buried and later interred and moved, she was actually buried in a lead-lined coffin in order to keep the probably incredible amount of radiation that was still, you know, part of her body from, you know, exposing others to that same sort of thing. Marie Curie changed the world when it came not only to scientific discovery, but the use of radiology in a medical way. And obviously, she is one of the world's foremost and most famous scientists, not just female scientists, but scientists in general. And we all owe her a debt of gratitude for grinding away with her husband, Pierre, and figuring out what was going on with those darn x-rays, what was going on, what we could do with them, and what would eventually become a modern, you know, medical radiology phenomenon. And now, your very sequitur fact of the week. Speaking of Marie Curie, like I said, it is a very sequitur fact of the week. It's quite related, in fact. In order to go see Marie Curie's original written manuscripts of her research that are in Paris, France at this very moment, you have to sign a waiver and wear radioactive protective garments to actually even look at and touch these documents. That's pretty fucking insane how how that much radiation still is emitted from these documents, from their insane long-term exposure to radiation. Get yourself a waiver, get yourself a hazmat suit, and go to Paris, France, and look at Marie Curie's genius original documentation. Just don't look for too awful long. For everyone listening, thank you very much for making it to the very end of this episode with me, as hopefully many of you do every single week you listen. Obviously, that's why I put chapters in the podcast, because if you don't like my intro, you don't like this, that, and the other thing, you can always skip around and get to the meat of it, whatever you would like to listen to. Guys, thank you so much for coming with me and and exploring this journey on April, on Ladies Month of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It has not only been a fantastic way to expose these these women who have done amazing things uh, in our collective history, but it has been eye-opening for me as well. I, just like you guys, when I'm doing research and doing these shows, I learn a great deal about people I know about, but people I didn't know a ton about until I decide to do a show about them on my own time. Guys, you can find this podcast on any of the podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Over. Overcast, tune in, all the ones that exist in the world, you can find my podcast on it. When you find it, you may have already found it, you're already listening to me. Fantastic. Tell your friends about the show and have them find it. And when all of you are there, go ahead and rate the show. Five stars if you think it's five star content. If not, I won't hold it against you. Rate it there. Review it. Leave me a review. You know, if you leave me a good review, I will I will read it on the show probably 
If uh, anything else you can do there, subscribe. That's a good one to do. You can subscribe to the podcast while you are there. That way you don't have to think or do anything about when uh, the podcast come out. It will just come out straight to you, and you can listen to it right then and there the day it is published. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser. You can follow the show at The Couch Pod on Twitter. And you can find the show's page on Facebook. Uh, search the Knowledge from the Couch podcast there. You can email the show, knowledgecouch at gmail.com, if you would like to do it that way. There are a billion ways to reach me. And every way is 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 a is a special snowflake to my to my very little heart. Guys, next month's content, I have no goddamn clue about what we're going to talk about maybe i should figure it out but there will probably be a little more upcoming news about how the podcast is doing what i have upcoming planned wise and we will figure it out there listen here in the next few days before the next friday episode drops i will have the may prequel episode up then we will talk about just random bullshit like i like to talk about and we will also speak about you know the the state of the podcast and we also speak about what we're doing for the month of May. Guys, until then, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for every part of support that you give me. It, it means a great deal for me. You know, it's 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 not much of a podcast. It's a free podcast. I don't make any money off doing. I just, I literally just spend my time doing it because it's fun and I like this and I like having people, you know, learn something new, even if it's not all the time terribly intelligent or, you know, whatever it is. I just like doing this, and everybody who supports me in that endeavor, it makes me very happy that you are part of this journey. Guys, until next week, I should say, until the next prequel episode, I will see you guys next time.